Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the Blessed Noble, and fully self-enlightened one. Uh, <clears throat> this evening, I wanted to um, preempt a lot of questions over the weekend concerning daily life. <laughs> Not all of them, but some of them. Uh, to look at what um, the way the Buddha advises us to live. And then to try, uh, well, to explain what it means to take refuge and precepts, because that's the little ceremony that I offer on Sunday, Sunday morning, um, and why we should do it, or why you might want to do it. Uh, the ceremony is on the Sunday, just after breakfast, 9.30, and uh, I'll talk about that tomorrow. Um, in more detail. So, <coughs> when the Buddha started to, uh, to teach, um, the first people who were attracted to him were people who wanted to live a similar sort of ascetic life. And they, many of them had already been living the ascetic life. Um, out in the jungle, or the forests, etc., begging for food an arms round rather that's what the preferred state <laughs> that's the preferred expression on arms round not begging for food um, and uh, when they were attracted to him uh, you know he said well come and try there is of course the story about uh, the women who turned up from his court later on in the in his in his uh, um, dispensation and uh, I'm sure many of you, uh, you you know the story that when they turned up he, he didn't want to ordain them he didn't think that they were they could take the life and um, he refused them three times which is basically no <laughs> but uh, Ananda said can women become fully liberated and he said yes so he said well why not give them a chance so he did ever since then he's been blamed <laughs> by the men <laughs> Now, although that uh, story exists, it would seem now, actually, that that's not quite right. Um, research has shown something else, that these people who turned up from court were, in fact, his own relatives. They were his stepmother, um, his wife, and a few of the court ladies. So they were obviously people who'd been living the good life. It would be difficult to sort of wear rag robes. They would have been probably still wearing rag robes then. You know, collect robes from the bodies of the dead, uh, sew them up, and uh, boil, uh, and that was it. Later on, he he made people cut them into squares so that when you look at a robe, it looks like paddy fields hmm? with passages. And then he made them dye it in arica nut, which turned into a sort of um, color of, uh, as one monk said, baby shit. So it's not very, <laughs> not particularly <laughs> fashionable. Uh, but there does seem to be, uh, uh, especially a nun there, just the name of course escapes me as usual, um, 
who seems to have asked him, it's in her verse. If you look at the verses left by the Teres, by the enlightened women, there's one verse there where she, she states that when she asked the Buddha if, he, if she could join him, she'd already a Jain nun, uh, he said the same thing, Ehi, come, Ehi Pasco, come and try. So that was, um, that was one part of it, and slowly but surely uh, an institution developed, and an institution basically is determined by its rules and regulations. So there were general rules and regulations of the time, but as monks and nuns misbehaved, then uh, all people complained about certain behaviour, uh, he would make a rule, see. Um, one of the ones that uh, you're all suffering from is not to uh, eat after lunch. So <laughs> that came about because um, lay people complained that the monks and nuns were turning up at all times and more than once for a bit. Of <laughs> so they got fed up and they said, no, this is not right. Going back, great big bowls of food, you see. <laughs> so what are they doing all day? Just sat there eating, you know. Yum. <laughs> So uh, he made the rule that you can only go out once. It had to be in the morning and it had to be eaten before noon. And the monks complained because all the best food is cooked in the evening, like in, like, like in most cultures. Uh, but he was quite strict about that. He said, no, if you want to join this dispensation, that's what you do. So that was one side of his dispensation. The other side, of course, was that many lay people uh, began to be attracted to his teachings. And so, uh, you know, he began to develop a, uh, a lay way of life because he had to answer their questions, right? And um, this comes out in the Eightfold Path, you see, which we'll come to in a little bit. Uh, but the one thing that I really, 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 really like to stress is that the jewel of the collection, the Satipatthana Discourse, in which the Buddha describes how to meditate all the stuff you've been hearing from me is out of that discourse. Uh, you know, like feeling feelings in feelings and all that, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> That's all from this discourse. Uh, that is addressed to the, the Kurus of Kuru Sadhamma. Right? That's, how the, that's how the discourse opens. It always opens with where he was and who he gave the talk to. So he was in a place which was close to modern Delhi and uh, he had been there before and he'd given teachings about mindfulness and meditation and all that. And when he came back, he was taken by how committed the village was, the little town was to the practice. And that's where he delivered this discourse. Right? So the discourse explaining the whole process of meditation, and it ends with, you know, if you maintain your mindfulness for seven years, for sure you will be either a non-returner or fully liberated. Never mind seven years, seven months. Never mind seven months, seven weeks. Never mind seven weeks, seven days, you see. That means you don't lose your attention for seven days, right? <laughs> As we found out, that's a wee bit difficult. Um, and uh, it's good to remember that, you see. Like, he didn't pull any punches, he didn't think, you know, well, uh, only, only monastics, you know, with their special form of institution and life can become liberated. Not at all, you see. And there are examples in the scriptures of lay people becoming uh, fully liberated. One is a cobbler, you know, he, he, he makes it. So, uh, he had to, shall we say, um, 
wandering through the countryside that was his you know normal thing he would go from one monastery to the next spending so much time here so much time there and on the way uh, he would stay in little villages and towns and in those days the wandering ascetics were seemed to be I mean apart uh, you know the entertainment I mean there was obviously folk entertainment you know bands and jumping up and down but <laughs> but it, but um, they would have these big gatherings on full moon and uh, the people would go to the parks and, and they'd have these talks given to them by these um, ascetics, these, le- these spiritual uh, seekers and the big questions and all that sort of stuff. And in fact, we know that the lay people complained to the Buddha that, you know, when we go to these teachers, you know, they always answer our questions and, and these teachers also give, you know, these monks and, and nuns, they also give talks, but yours sit like dumb pigs. So he said, right, <laughs> they made a rule. <laughs> All these rules come about because of, because of silly things like that. So he said, if, if a monk or nun is asked a, a Dharma question, they have to uh, respond. It's a rule, you see. Now don't take advantage, please. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, you know, he, he has lots of advice concerning, uh, you know, the lay life. And uh, this comes out, as I say, in the Eightfold Path. So uh, it's good to look at that. It's good to look at the Eightfold Path and see what he's actually saying. So the first, the first is right awareness, uh, uh, right understanding, right attitude. So that's really what we've been developing over this week. We've been developing our understanding uh, about the way things really are. And hopefully that's, that will in time sink down into an attitudinal base, an attitude. And then from there there's an outflow. So that outflow is into right speech, right action and right livelihood. So now right sp- there's always the negative and the positive. So wrong speech of course is you know, telling whoppers and, and coarse language and uh, useless language and slander. Those are your four types of wrong speech. And um, all those bring us, you know, problems. Right speech is kindly. See, it's always from a position of kindness, which you can include any, uh, any positive uh, attitude. You know, kindness from compassion, kindness from joy, uh, sympathetic joy, kindness from, from friendliness, from metta. Kindness, uh, honest, you see, honest. Uh, uh, that honesty even stretches to not, you know, not to exaggerate. Um, and, and then finally, you see, which is the most difficult one, at a suitable time. <laughs> so if you want to say something, something to somebody which you know might upset them, then you have to choose your time, say it kindly, and, uh, and be upfront about it. And that's what the Buddha is saying, you see. If you choose the wrong time, then you can expect it to completely go wrong. So, <laughs> this idea of choosing the right time, a suitable time, I think is rather insightful. Sort of blurting out, you know. And, uh, and that brings us all to this business of aggression and um, what's that other word where you're being direct? Aggressive and... What's the word they use for that? Assertive, assertive that's right. Uh, you know, to be assertive. So. People think when you're assertive, you have to sort of, you know, stamp your foot and, and put your, you know, put your fist on your hips 
and, and say it quite straightforward, you know, I will not have this, you see. <laughs> but to be assertive is coming from a place of no fear, no aversion. That's what they feel. And when it comes from that place, it can be terribly kind, but they know that it's, that <laughs> you mean it, you see. Um, um, a slightly uh, an example which is you know gives you some idea of that is I remember Mother Teresa of Calcutta she went to uh, uh, Lebanon when that dreadful uh, stuff was going on and um, some school had been sort of stuck in the middle of two firing lines it seems and the school there was lots of children in the school they'd been caught in the school and it was a dilemma as to, as to what to do. They were very afraid to bring the kids out. It's very strange uh, to see because I saw it on television. Some of you might have seen it. And she's brought to the school. So I was thinking, well, why didn't they shoot her, you know, in the crossfire? <laughs> but anyway, the officials and all that, they brought her to this place where she could see the school. They told her what the situation was and that, you know, like what to do, you see. Well, she had no problem, you see. She just walked to the school and brought them out. Everybody else is so afraid and full of fear and, and all that confusion. But um, that's what had to be done. And she was prepared to perhaps sacrifice her life to, to at least make the attempt. So when you, when you find yourself um, in a position of uh, you know, being bullied or somebody saying something which is uh, rather nasty and all that sort of stuff and you want to talk to them, see, it doesn't have to be you know up front straight on the nose I will not have this sort of behavior <laughs> you know coming from that position of no fear and no uh, no hatred no aversion um, to say it very kindly you know say look I'm I won't take that sort of language anymore you know and it, and it hits much more strongly you see you see if there's any fear any anger then subconsciously they'll bounce back off it you see so coming from equanimity is a much better place, whatever we do, always, always, always. It's been a regular um, uh, experience of mine. I wrote in one of my uh, little diaries, I call them diaries, I call them blogs, on my uh, monthly email where I came, we had, had to not, we had to get rid of this big tree, this oak tree, because of um, oil tank regulations. And uh, I, came out, I came out of the house and my neighbor was in an absolute rage. I've never seen, I mean, it was real rage. He completely lost it. And he was, you know, he was saying things like, you know, I'm from Liverpool and I'll have you shot. <laughs> Don't say much for Liverpool. <laughs> A killer, that. And, uh, <laughs> oh, he doesn't listen to this tape. And uh, he, um, the, uh, the, 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 uh, <laughs> The lumberjack, uh, who was okay by the way, and quite an expert, uh, he uh, he was in a you know he was he was standoffish. He seemed to be very cool, but that's because he had these two great big strapping young lads next to him. You see, and um, I came out into this, and I I thought you see, so I thought it was nothing to do with me. So I was really calm, cool, collected. You know, the peacemaker. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and I I said uh, you know what's going on. You know, and I said. 
and uh, and he raged on about this tree should never been cut it's not our tree it's uh, you know we've had all this business before you know, somebody was fined so many thousand pounds on and on and on you see and then he turns on me and he says and i'm you know i'm going to drive my tractor up and down your <laughs> the side of your fence all day you know to disturb me all sorts of stuff. and uh, you know finally I sort of cool him down you know and say well and then he realized that uh, i'd employed this lumberjack he, he wasn't he wasn't part of sati panya so that cooled him down a bit and very slowly over over a little bit of period of time he sort of began to cool down and this guy then approached and and, and uh, and said, you know, reminded him that he just threatened him with his life. <laughs> and a simple apology would do. And, uh, and finally, he, he just made a very quick apology that was good, and he went out with his tail between his legs. He'd got the whole situation completely wrong, you see. And um, it was, I mean, I, I don't know whether I would have reacted like that if I'd have been there at the beginning of the argument, see. <laughs> it was that I entered into it thinking it was nothing to do with me. See, so I was absolutely stable, you see. And when he turned on me, I was able to maintain that sort of stability, you see. So, uh, and that immediately gave, gave nothing for this rage to sort of hang on to, see. So that's always, that was a, a little example from my own life telling me, you know, that, uh, you know, equanimity is always the best, uh, the best policy. Um, so that's you know this this right speech business uh, approaching people in a in a in a way which is always kind you see, and kindness undermines any any form of of anger because it's got nothing to hold on to you see. As you know, if somebody approaches you in a in a sort of uh, accusatory way, um, as soon as you say I'm sorry, uh, that undermines the whole thing you see, and then of course you prove it was their fault, but. Uh, <laughs> But it's just, it's just, you know, always undermining their anger is, is part and parcel of, of, of the good life. Which, as we, which as, we, as we can see, doesn't stop you from getting your point across. It's just making that little distinction there. So it's a good thing to keep in mind, the distinction between being aggressive and being assertive. And that when we're assertive, it doesn't have to be done with a sort of, you know, strict, loud voice coming from the... the coming from the position of righteousness. I mean, that's, that's basically another, another form of, of aggression in a way. So this right speech has, uh, there's always the negative side and the positive side see, with, these, with these instructions. When it comes to right action, that's normally described as these five precepts that we speak, that we say in the morning. And uh, it's the basically, that's what you don't do. See, that's what you don't do. So we try not to harm any living being, right? And not to kill any living being, not to harm any living being. Well, I mean, as soon as you, as soon as you take that position, then of course you move towards uh, caring for all living beings. See, and of course this takes us into that whole area of, of vegetarianism, which is a constant question within Buddhist circles. You know, should should we be vegetarian? In, uh, in Buddhist uh, culture, the only vegetarians that I know of are the Chinese monks, the Chinese monks. They, are very, they can be very strict vegetarian. And I once did a wedding ceremony for a Chinese um, a woman who was marrying an English, an English man. And after the ceremony, she came up to me quite worried and said that at the banquet, you know, at the banquet which they would have after this ceremony, they'd be eating meat, you see. So uh, you know, I I gave the I gave the, the the normal line that the Buddha didn't ban eating meat. That wasn't the problem. Uh, 
so it's up to a person's sensibility really um, uh, when at, my <laughs> at the monastery I joined in Sri Lanka you see the monks one of the monks very rather sort of proudly came up to me and said we're vegetarians because monks eat meat if they're offered meat it's not a problem but the, the message had gone out that uh, monks at Kandaboda were vegetarian you see so uh, I'd not been there for two or three meals when fish turns up um, and so I didn't say anything of course <laughs> one, one, one has to be careful and uh, I heard later that um, a rather wry westerner had said that well in Sri Lanka fish are um, uh, self-propelling automated vegetables <laughs> <laughs> automated self-propelling vegetables so uh, <laughs> so uh, that's it you see so it depends where you draw the line as you know in western culture the benedictines were vegetarian but they did eat fish they had pools in which they kept fish so you know fish vegetarian uh, the problem with uh, is not the eating of meat of course it's the killing of the animal and uh, it's up to it's up to a person to decide you know where they are in that sort of um, loop see so of course when you buy the meat you support the butcher and so on and so so on and so forth and it depends on really what your body needs so I know a woman who is only got I think she's only got half a kidney you see and uh, basically uh, she she eats she, she has to eat meat it seems you know there's also this argument of blood groups uh, certain blood groups are meat eaters rather than vegetarian eaters which which mirror our ancestral history uh, but uh, I think um, you know, it's up to every individual to decide whether they want to be vegetarian or not or even vegan or not See, it's up to you um, as a monastic of course because you're receiving alms uh, that's what you eat you see because you haven't been in that loop this is the point you see you might say well you hold your bowl out and <laughs> you get get a great big chunk of beef I mean it's uh, you know but the thing is that um, monks don't invite people to give them food you see they can say I prefer to be vegetarian in uh, Burma during the rainy season when monks do when monks monks and nuns gather to do special practice often they'll take a vegetarian vow um, but if I know that you've killed an animal to feed me I can't eat it that's my rule See? If, if it's a leftover or it's part of something and then I turn up at the door with me bowl and you say I have a blooming monkey here again so give me <laughs> chuck a leg of chicken in there then that's uh, and that would be that would be allowable but if I'd known you'd rip this leg off especially for me then <laughs> the chicken was hopping around I, I wouldn't I, I'd have to refuse it you see so uh, there's this whole murky area around vegetarianism where the Buddha didn't basically you know make any strict laws uh, there's no yeah. and you must remember that in those times there was famine you know and, and you had to kill your livestock to keep alive and, there are, and how are you going to teach the Buddha Dhamma to Eskimos you know, or Inuits rather as they prefer these days or people who live in deserts you know? so you know it's like there's no abs in, in, in this idea of a relative universe everything dependent on something else you can't make absolute laws see? even killing you can't make an absolute law about killing um, 
when I was at the monastery in Burma, it was regularly fumigated for mosquitoes. See? So nobody complained about that. So there's a, you know, there are, there are different degrees of, of moral law, aren't there? You know? And uh, it's up to the individual to decide where they are, that's all. So it's very rare that something is absolutely black and white. So the second one, of course, is uh, not to take what is not freely given. So that's, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a pretty, when you think about things that you, like, even, you might become sensitive to, to taking even, you know, a pen home from work, you see, because it's not given for that reason. So it gets, the more you get into these rules and regulations, the more refined uh, they become. And it's not just, you know, thieving something. Um, in the Buddhist, um, in, in, in the Buddhist uh, monks' rules, if I have a, a liking for that bowl, for instance, it's a singing bowl, and I think, hmm, and I'm looking around to see if <laughs> I can just slip it in my bag and borrow it, uh, you see, uh, then of course that's uh, it's still at the thought level. So I haven't actually broken any rule. All rules to do with monks and nuns are to do with action. And then if I if I come in again and see that rule, you see, and then I'm overtaken by my desire to, uh, you know, to slip it away, and my hand moves towards it, uh, but I don't actually, you know, uh, even, even to the point of touching it, you see, that's called, that's called a dukkata, that's a, that's a bad thing <laughs> to do. <laughs> uh, moving it, moving towards it, you see. If I touch it, then that's called a heavy offence, you see. Now, if I move it a nanocentimetre, and then decide not to take it, I've still committed an act of theft, and I'm no longer a monk. Yeah, see? So the Buddha's quite clear about what constitutes <laughs> an act and what doesn't constitute an act. See? So if you take that into all sorts of areas of your life, you can see, so long as it's in the mind, it's not manifested outward, it's not done harm out there. It's done harm within here if you've indulged it, but it's not done harm out there. And so long as you're moving towards something, towards you're about to do something, uh, of course, you're now into a dangerous area where you might, you know, uh, might uh, actually find yourself doing something you didn't want to do. But once you've actually done it, even if you then decide not to do it, but once it's done, it's done, that's it, the act is complete, you see. Of course, the, uh, the consequence is different. The consequence of, of uh, say, uh, you know, just moving that bowl a nanocentimeter and then saying, whoa, no, and then walking away, well, there's going to be no consequence to that, right? But to actually stick it in my coat and shoot off with it and be caught at the gates, there could be... <laughs> my whole reputation as a, as a completely enlightened being might just fall apart. <laughs> so you can't imagine the Buddha shoplifting, can you? Wouldn't, wouldn't sort of fit. So, uh, you know, that whole business about not taking. Now, the opposite of cow, of course, is, is generosity. Okay? We move towards generosity. And uh, generosity was, was the subject that the Buddha always began his talks with when he talked to lay people. Because anybody can be generous, even a thief can be generous with, this, with the stuff he's just thieved. <laughs> <laughs> so generosity is not, it, it's a sort of, it comes prior, in a sense, to, to, to the rule about taking and not taking. Any, anybody can be generous um, with what they have. 
And remember, generosity is to do with both time, both wealth and time. And, and that's what it leads to, you see. Uh, once you... Uh, once you once you stop thinking about what I want, you see. So at the worst end, it's it's taking something which is not ours, right? But then in the middle, it's this sort of greed of always wanting something. You know, it's always wanting what other people have, and envy, and and jealousy, and all that sort of stuff. You see. And when all that passes, where does that energy go? You see, all that wanting. You see, well, it moves outwards into wanting others to have. And that's this natural transformation of the negative side of our characters and personalities towards the positive. It just, just happens naturally. And, uh, you know, I think one way that we can um, uh, judge, it's one of those words, isn't it? One way that we can see that, our, uh, that we're progressing spiritually is that we're getting far more delight in giving than in receiving. That's always a good sign that you're actually that you delight in giving. That's one of the Buddhist phrases to delight in giving. The third one is normally translated as uh, around sexual activity, not to not to abuse our sexual activity. And of course, in those days, that would, as in previous times in the West, that would have been confined to the married life, um, you know, to a proper to that to that uh, type of relationship. Uh, these days, of course, it's it sort of lengthens out to a loving relationship, doesn't it? You know, and uh, I mean, I'll, I, whenever I talk about this, I always, I always say this. Of course, that sex is, you know, just by itself, it becomes an empty experience. And then I always quote Woody Allen, but as empty experiences go... <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you see, it's, a, it's just one of those things... Uh, but really, uh, that, that precepts, I think, you can lengthen it out to any lust for anything, lust for food, lust for getting out into the open. It's, it's just that part of us that is, um, you know, overreaching, you know, overreaching. Again, it always comes back to this seeking happiness in the sensual world. Uh, the fourth one is... Um, Wrong. Oh wait a minute. What did I? I said wrong speech first. Did I? Not to tell that. Yeah. Sorry. It should have been um, not to harm any living beings. Wrong speech. Uh, that should have come forth. Actually. Sorry. And then there was not to take what is not freely given. And then there's this business of um, not to abuse the senses. And then finally, always a tricky one for 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 a Western culture, not to take drinks and drunks, <laughs> drinks and drunks, drinks and drugs that cloud the mind. You see. So the normal question is, well, what's wrong with a, you know, what's wrong with a glass of wine, you know, especially if you're French. <laughs> what's wrong with a glass of wine? Italian. I mean, how can you, how can you not have a glass of wine with with your spaghetti? So really, again, this comes back to the individual. I mean, generally speaking, in our culture, to have a glass of wine with food is neither here nor there. Uh, it's not. <clears throat> but the in the scriptures, um, you the reason for this is that under the influence of you do things which you would not normally do. That's the problem with, with specifically alcohol. Hmm? And um, it's up to a person's refinement. I mean, I, you know, um, some, some monks would, um, some teachers would say that you mustn't ever go near alcohol, you know, all that sort of stuff. But it's up to the individual to decide what, um, 
what mental state arises when they, when they take alcohol. I remember when I first started meditating, I'd come out of an evening session and I hadn't eaten. And uh, I went into a pub and I had uh, half a bitter, you see. I met just to test it, actually, to test the effect of half a bitter <laughs> on the end of the body. No, it's true, honestly, I did, I did, I did. And uh, I drank this half a bitter and I sat there and I swear I felt this curtain fall down on my brain. It just came right down and I thought, well, this is it, you see. This is what it does. It, it sort of does have, even a, a small amount of alcohol does have an effect on your level of consciousness and what, what you're doing. So considering that we're trying to develop our awareness, you know, the last thing <laughs> we want to do is do something which is undermining that development. So again, it's, it's left up to the individual. The, Western, the Eastern culture is not so alcoholic based, as you know. It's, I mean, they have, have alcohol, but uh, as far as I know, there's none of this, there's none of the culture of wine, culture of tea, but not of wine. So, and, and when it comes to recreational drugs, well, that's the same, that's the same thing, you know. Um, recreational drugs distort your, uh, your, your consciousness. So you'd have to decide whether that's what you want to do or not. See? So that whole area, really, for somebody who is bent on purifying their minds and, and, and on consciousness, then, of course, they would, you know, they, they'd come off all that stuff. So those, um, those are the five uh, basic uh, rules, you might say, uh, of what not to do. But that doesn't cover, in a sense, all the goodnesses that, that uh, we're asked to develop. So the four of them, the four illimitables, are love, compassion, joy and peace. And I'll say more about that tomorrow when we do the um, loving-kindness meditation, the metta. Uh, but these are your basic relationships to, uh, to life and they're illimitable because uh, you know, the, the development of the mind is uh, seemingly indefinite. It's a bit like, you know, like number. You know, no matter how great a number you can conceive, you can always add one. See? There's no, it's like an eternity of numbers. So it's the same with the mind, the heart. You can, you can continue to develop it. Um, and there are meant to be innumerable number of beings, so you can, you can be there forever offering metta <laughs> with an occasional lunch break. The others are the seven, uh, the ten parami. Parami means the other shore, and it's normally translated as uh, perfections, which is a bit, you know, it's just, that gives you the idea that you come to the end of this, you know, a perfection. But basically they're virtues. I would much prefer the word virtues and uh, they, in, they, they include a, um, a host of things I'll just read them out Parami. Um, the first one is this is this generosity uh, the second one is moral the moral law which we've discussed the third one is renunciation so here we have to make, you know, I, I think I've said before, the distinction between self-mortification and renunciation. Renunciation is giving up something to see what our attachment is to it. And in seeing our attachment, we wait for that attachment to go, you see. So one of the things I've, I've suggested is uh, whatever your most uh, enjoyable program is on the telly, to sit there with a cup of tea and a biscuit and don't turn it on. 
and just and, and just feel the pain. <laughs> so you wait for it to pass, wait for it to pass, see? and keep keep doing that until until it's all gone and you don't care about that program anymore. So then then you can watch it. <laughs> uh, wisdom, of course, uh, energy. So that's you know that that business of uh, right energy, putting the right energy into something. Patience. The Buddha calls. Uh, the highest form of ascetic practice to be able to bear with not to lose one's patience over things to become irritable you know, and all that so of course that to be patient you have to you have to sit in the other person's place don't you? you have to be in the other person's side to understand why they're behaving like that you know why the train is late you know all that sort of stuff <laughs> truthfulness we've uh, talked about resolution you see you hear me go on and on about resolutions so there it is in one of the parami. Uh, it's a commitment, you see. You keep making resolutions. Even if you fail, it doesn't matter. You just keep putting energy into a resolution. And eventually, it, it grows in energy, you see. Um, and, and it takes a hold on us. Loving kindness, metta, uh, which we'll do tomorrow. And, of course, equanimity. And I'll just read out what this says in the commentary, which sort of puts them all together for us. So that you can understand that although there is this negative, uh, you know, what we shouldn't do, there's a much more about what we should be doing to develop our hearts and develop our relationship to the world. So here's, here's what, the, um, what it said in the Visuddhimagga. The Visuddhimagga is a later work which um, is considered the handbook, really, of Theravada Buddhism. And it's probably one of the greatest spiritual classics of the world really but this is what it says anyway um, as the great being uh, meaning someone destined to become liberated or Buddhahood are concerned with the welfare of living beings not tolerating the suffering of beings wishing long duration to the higher states of happiness of beings and being impartial and just to all beings therefore they give alms to all beings so that they may be happy without investigating whether they are worthy or not. By avoiding to doing them harm, they observe morality. And in order to bring morality to perfection, they train themselves in renunciation. In order to understand clearly what is beneficial and injurious to beings, they purify their wisdom. For the sake of the welfare and happiness of others, they constantly exert their energy. Though having become heroes through utmost energy, they are nevertheless full of forbearance towards the manifold failings of beings. And once they have promised to give or to do something, they do not break their promise. With unshakable resolution, they work for the weal and welfare of beings. With unshakable kindness, they are helpful to all. And by reason of their equanimity, they do not expect anything in return. That's nice, isn't it? Very good. So that's, that's the positive side of our, uh, of, of what you might call right action. Then there's the, uh, we move on now to right livelihood. So there are those livelihoods we're not, we're not supposed to get involved in, uh, like, well, one of them is, of course, killing animals and arms, trafficking human beings. I mean, uh, you know, you can, you can think of those. Um, but the big thing about livelihood is is not what you do but how you do it 
See, this is, I think this is the real core of the thing. Um, whether we're doing some, you know, uh, some of the unskilled jobs of society, um, you know, like clearing parks, uh, cleaning, that sort of thing, or whether we're doing some of the most highly skilled work in society. In spiritual terms, it's irrelevant. In spiritual terms, it's the attitude with which you do it. So if you see what you're doing as a service, then it becomes a spiritual practice. And once we've grasped that, then you know, it, makes, it makes work very worthwhile. Because all the things that we might suffer at work, such as the boredom of it, or the tedium of it, or the, um, or the fact that other people are nasty to us, all that whole area, you see, when, it's, when it becomes at the service of, when it's a service that you're giving, then it all becomes very worthwhile. And I think that's the, um, that's, you know, if, if we start from that, if in the morning, you see, having done your two hours meditation, <laughs> you, you sit quietly, <laughs> you sit quietly and offer metta to all beings, you see, and then you get round to work, see, where you're going to spend really the better part of our lives, you know, eight hours a day or so. And so you sit there, you see, and you just consider what, what you do, and you do it for the benefit of. See, for the benefit of the people you're working with, for the benefit of the firm or the organization, and through that, for the benefit of all. And if we engender that within us, of course, then it becomes meaningful, no matter what we're doing. See? Um, so when I was a kid, uh, you know, I got a job from school and I worked in a, in a cake factory and um, they had this uh, belt, you know, with the cakes coming on and there was a, a group of women, see, and they put me on the end of the line and uh, the women, of course, were very used to this sort of work and I just joined them and they were very quick with their hands and could keep up quite complex conversations while they had my job was to stick this damn cherry on the top <laughs> and every time I missed I had to shut the machine down so they got, they got a bit upset with me and uh, <laughs> I, never, I didn't quite get the hang but they didn't give me enough time I say. if they'd have, said, they'd have given me a half a day to get into it you know but they, the women were very kind you know he's only a lad leave him alone uh, and uh, now you think well how could you, you know, how could you do something like that and turn that into a spiritual practice, uh, especially on, on a sort of production line like that? How could you do that, you see? Well, if you think about it, it's a, an enormously, you know, if I'd have known, if I'd have been into this sort of practice, this was an enormous opportunity to develop moment-to-moment -moment concentration. <laughs> right attitude, completely there, with the cherry, on the cake. Just like that, on the cake, on the cake. <laughs> Instead I was, oh, bloody hell, I've been doing this for all day. <laughs> and of course, if you're on the line, you're on the line for hours. You, you know, it's two hours, ding, the bell goes up, a cup of tea, bang, up, up you go again. <laughs> I, I, I once had a job just puncturing holes in this damn thing, that, that shot, you know, in front of my eyes. 
So uh, any any situation can be uh, can be seen as uh, as having potential for some sort of spiritual practice. So yes, that is service. Service is the the important thing to remember when it comes to work. So now, um, uh, you know, if we if we leave it all there in terms of general guidelines about our lives, I mean, there's books written on it, lots of good books about daily life and all that. Um, the idea of taking refuge and precepts for the people who do it is that, in a sense, um, you've got to have some sort of reference point in the spiritual life. It doesn't doesn't matter what it is, <clears throat> so long as it's obviously worthwhile. But if you keep hopping from here to there, then it's like um, uh, you're you're using different value systems, which uh, in event eventually can just confuse you see so um, if we look at our lives and think well is there an authority a final authority I go to for moral problems for actual guidance is there, is there a moral authority an ethical authority I go to whom I really trust and from there I would be able to put into context any other information I get, any other spiritual instruction I get. See, so if you take that position, it doesn't it doesn't stop you from this authority taking in other other teachings, uh, other traditions, except that it has to make sense to this central to this central authority. If it doesn't, you've got two authorities, and that's when your confusion starts, right? Like who who do I follow? What should I do? And uh, <coughs> The idea of taking refs and precepts is, at one level, it can be a very general uh, commitment to the spiritual life, and at others, it can be quite specific. Okay, so we take refuge in the Buddha. So the Buddha is a historical personage. We have lots of information about his life and how he lived. Uh, we have lots of information about the people around him at the time. Uh, we've, we've an enormous amount of information about his teachings and what, and what he, he proposed and uh, to take refuge in that is to take refuge in not simply some personage but an exemplar so this is your example you see and in a sense uh, the, Buddha, the, the Buddha is mirroring some archetypes within us there's something in us that has to be liberated and so that would, and the Buddha's path is, shall we say, uh, specific to the Buddha. If you were a Christian, then Jesus, Jesus Christ would be your central authority. So often I get, for instance, people who are Christians saying, can I meditate, you see? So my answer is, I don't see a confusion, as lo but you, you know, you've got to make sense of this within the teachings of Jesus Christ. And if, if you can't, then it creates a contradiction. It, crea it just creates, it just creates uh, wasted energy. So some people, of course, won't, won't go near other practices who are more fundamentalist Christians. But um, there are many uh, monks and nuns, actually, within Christianity, within you know, the Catholic tradition and uh, also the, the Anglican tradition here in Britain who practice uh, some form of Buddhist meditation. And there's a nun... Who lives, um, uh, who lives out in the Brecon Beacons there and um, she, 
she holds the Chan lineage, uh, the Chinese, uh, Chinese Buddhist li lineage, um, and she's also an ordained Anglican nun under uh, the Archbishop, Archbishop um, Canterbury. So she's able to hold these two without contradiction. She, you know, for her it's a great sort of um, exploration. Uh, but for others it would be impossible. So it's the same with uh, people who are committed to the Buddha. They, they, wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't see it possible to do something like yoga or, or, or to practice any other form apart from something which is strictly within the Buddhist tradition. But uh, in our postmodern world where people gather their own spiritual portfolio, uh, the problem is uh, not the amount of choice we have but to make it uh, makes sense to some sort of central position, right? So this is this is what I mean by having some sort of commitment to a fundamental authority from which you move, and you can you can accept teachings from all traditions and practices from all traditions, um, which makes sense to you, which makes sense to that authority. So in the widest uh, sense, to take refuge. Um, in the Buddha is to take refuge within one's own Buddha nature you see rather than being too specific about this personage in the past the, the, your, your absolute refuge is in the Buddha but because this is connected to the historical Buddha then the historical Buddha becomes your point of reference now what do we mean by that the Buddha says quite clearly who sees me sees the Dharma who sees the Dharma sees me. What he's saying is that his life, his teachings, are an expression of the truth. So what we're really taking refuge in is the Dharma. And I know that we, in the West, we're called Buddhists, but that's not what Buddhists call themselves originally. They used to call themselves Sadamikas, which means followers of the true law. And you'll still get that translation in certain Chinese texts. So we're always coming back not to a person. It's not a guru-based uh, dispensation. It's a dharma-based dispensation. It's about, it's about the teaching. And the teaching has both the theoretical side and the practice. And that's the dharma, see, the Buddha dharma. So um, you'll find some people who are committed to uh, Buddhism uh, being, getting very upset about being called Buddhists. You see, they don't like being, <laughs> they don't like being called Buddhism. They, they want it to be called Buddha Dhamma, you see. Because Buddhists, the word Buddhist centers us too much upon the personage of the Buddha. Whereas in fact, that's not the way the Buddha saw it himself. The Buddha said, who sees the Dharma sees me, see. So when we take refuge in the Dharma, uh, the Dhamma, it's, it's taking refuge in these two factors, both the theory and the practice. And then finally, it's the Sangha. So the Sangha is all those people, uh, traditionally, all those people who've experienced Nibbana. So they stand as witness to the Buddha's own experience. And that's the real refuge. Um, but of course, it can open out. And these days in the West, the word Sangha, which is normally uh, restricted to the ordained Sangha, is used to mean any Buddhist community. And I think the reason for that is that there doesn't seem to be a word whereby Buddhists can refer to themselves. See? So when you refer to yourself, to your group, you might say, well, this is the Gaya Sangha. 
and that's I think that's where in, 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 a, in a country which is all Buddhist you don't have to do that see everybody's <laughs> everybody is Buddhist but here in the West where uh, you know there's every religion under the sun can be found <laughs> then there has to be some way in which people who are committed to the Buddha Dhamma refer to themselves and the word that's been chosen is Sangha which means community means community when the Buddha in, uh, uh, when he's dying or towards the end of his life he says that he's he's happy that he's been able to uh, establish the four assemblies that's how it's translated it's a slightly different word the four assemblies uh, the monks and nuns the lay women and the lay men and he talks about them as being four assemblies he doesn't use the word sangha there you see but we you know I, I don't see any problem at all in when we take refuge in the sangha we take refuge in uh, in, a more, in the restricted sense of those people who've been fully liberated because they are again our exemplars but they're also all those people who are practicing with us and all those people in a sense who are practicing spiritually they're all part of our support system people often say well it must you know it's difficult being a lay person and practicing uh, well that's because of the fragmented nature of our society and its, and its enormous restlessness um, if you think of say uh, Islam if you were a Muslim and you went to somewhere like Saudi Arabia and right there at the prayer time right there when you're having your if they uh, cost a coffee I presume it's in Saudi Arabia I can't imagine it not being in Saudi Arabia <laughs> and you suddenly stop everything and bow towards Mecca nobody would bat an eyelid you know that's that's what you do now if you did that in Britain you know you'd, you'd probably get locked away or something you know you sort of carry you away so if, if you uh, you know we live in that sort of society where spiritual practice is seen as sort of well it's your own thing it's your own thing you know and you keep it to yourself and and generally pe generally speaking it's it's a bit it's a bit odd a bit off you know I mean, it's all right if you're one of the regular ones you know but like you know we even even to the point where people can't wear their insignia you know, it's become sort of peculiar you remember that nurse who had to take the cro the, the crucifix i mean the stewardess. the stewardess yeah i mean it just becomes in a sense pathetic really because of this this um inability really to um to see a spiritual path you know it's just one of those things everybody's afraid of you know fundamentalism and and how how wild it can get so um that's this taking of refuges and the precepts of course we we discussed earlier so now if it occurs to you that you'd like to do that what i do what i suggest is that um, you take it for a time so one year you see and if you if you act according to your commitment you see at the end of that one year you can see whether it's it's been of benefit to you see so it, that's up to you some people take it for life they've got that they've already got that feeling about you know that commitment I've been working with Zen Buddhism only for about a year and a half and I just I just knew this was this was my this was the answer to my problem so I I ordained very early on really up at Throstle Hole Abbey there the Jukai ceremony takes five days for heaven's sakes by the end of it you definitely know you've committed yourself <laughs> 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 this is just a, a 15 minute ceremony so 
Um, and uh, if you do, if you think, well, you might want to take it for a year or, or for longer, five years, doesn't really matter. Um, it's nice to take a name. It's nice to choose a virtue which you'd like, you know, particularly to develop. And uh, if you if you give me that word, I'll I'll find the Dharma equivalent, and that becomes, as it were, your your little secret spiritual name. You see, <coughs> which you mustn't use as a password. <laughs> <laughs> Except on Dharma sites. <laughs> so uh, that's that's it. So on you know, uh, there's plenty of time tomorrow for you to in, to consider this. And if you want to, uh, you're very welcome. So on the Sunday at uh, after breakfast, nine thirty, we'll gather here, and uh, it's done in 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 a rep in a um, rep repetition way. Not like we do in the morning where we all chant. It's as though I'm handing you the tradition. So I chant and then you, you chant, you see. Buddhansa Nangachami, you say Buddhansa Nangachami, you see. And then uh, after that, uh, I, well, I, I'll explain it more on the day. But that's, that's the main, that's the main uh, ceremony, that's the main part of the ceremony. I think that gives us a sort of, a, I hope I've given you a sort of an, an overall general view of um, the Buddha's teaching when it comes to, um, you know, how to live. Um, and that there is, um, there's a, maybe a time in your life when you want to just commit yourself to it. So you just stop all the maybes and ifs and all that and just see if it works for you. Those of you uh, who did it last year, for instance, if you want to recommit, that, that's, that's also possible. And you can also change your name. <laughs> uh, even, you know, even we can change our names. There was a, uh, a monk who uh, was named after one of the early, early disciples of the Buddha who'd been one of his companions. And it was rather unfortunate in English. He was Dutch himself. Uh, the word was whopper. <laughs> so... <laughs> In time, he had that change to Jnana to Sita, which means the heavenly realm of, of knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was rather funny, that. So, <laughs> so um, I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. And I uh, trust that uh, you will continue your practice and uh, deepen your insights and arrive at that wonderful place of liberation sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.